Welcome to the Tea Room. I'm Kate Swanell. Before you grab a cuppa, we have an announcement. The Tea Room podcast is moving. In just a few weeks' time, we will rebrand as the Medical Republic podcast. It'll be super easy to find us. Just type The Medical Republic into Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast platform, and we'll come up. We'll have a snazzy new format, bringing you the latest clinical research, new hacks for running your clinic, and investigations into stories that really matter to GPs. Now it's time to meet today's special guest. Capitalism that has no boundaries and where, for example, where these corporations, they provide a whole lot of externalities. In other words, by virtue of their production and their consumption, then association, for example, between tobacco and lung cancer or ultra-processed foods and diabetes. The companies that produce that don't pay for the costs of it. Individuals and states pay for for that cost. And that means that money can't be spent on other things like education or other forms of healthcare. They completely externalise all the negatives and they leave it for for the rest of the society to pick up, not only in terms of healthcare, but also in terms of waste. The rest of society is picking up literally what uh, what they've left behind. That was Professor Rob Moody. Rob is Professor of Public Health at the University of Melbourne and a self-described eternal optimist. Last month, he and his colleagues, including Professor Anna Gilmore from the University of Bath in the UK, published a series in The Lancet on the commercial determinants of health. By now, we're all familiar with the social determinants of health, the non-medical factors that influence health outcomes. Things like socioeconomic position, conditions of employment, the distribution of wealth, empowerment and social support. But what are the commercial determinants of health? It turns out we're surrounded by them, and in some context, we're bombarded by them. We asked Professor Moody to come along and tell us more. Maybe we should start by explaining to the listeners exactly what a commercial determinant of health is. Broadly speaking, the commercial determinants of health are the systems, practices and pathways through which commercial actors drive human health and equity. And this derives out of 1990, we started with the social determinants of health. Interestingly enough, I mean, this has become such an important part of these social determinants of health. We know about the big four, tobacco, alcohol, processed food, fossil fuel industries. Is it more than just that though? It's way more. I mean, it's not only in terms of the products, but it's also Mm. in terms of how you might provide a public good, for example. We're seeing this in Australia. I mean, education. Now we have a two-speed education system, a private system, where I'm seeing these huge buildings arise now in the leafy green eastern suburbs, and they're receiving government, government subsidies whilst literally... Schools in other parts of, of the nation get so little, and there's such a, a difference in, in equity. You know, we call Australia the land of the fair go. Well, it's currently not. It's certainly not in the healthcare system at the moment, is it? Well, and yeah, again, it's the same thing. The commercial sector has enormous potential to do lots of really, really good things. The point is an unfettered system that just allows those with power to dominate and get more powerful and to dominate even more doesn't really help us. Can you give us some examples of where a commercial entity has done some good things in terms of the determinants of health? A brilliant group in the UK called Share Action, which Mm -hmm. is actually now working with a whole lot of investors to actually influence corporations 
that work with retailers so yeah. that retailers start, for example, in, in the UK, the big ones like Tesco, to start to produce and change their offerings from just really high levels of ultra-processed foods, otherwise known as junk food and junk drinks, and starting to produce healthier products as well. And that's sort of the area we're really trying to move towards where we know people have to make a profit in the commercial sector. I mean, that's their sustainability, if you like. But the point is, can't we make them in, in much healthier ways where it doesn't destroy the planet nor does it destroy our lives? Do we need to learn how to share what we know between these different sectors? Exactly. And that was really, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, I really got involved in this when I was at Vic Health and got involved very much with, with you know, tobacco control and watching the, I'd never really seen how the tobacco industry operated and it's, and it's really very nasty. Then to see also within the ultra-processed food, the junk food industries, alcohol, and now we're seeing obviously gambling. And to see the fact that researchers actually work together and now both researchers and practitioners and more importantly, if I can say, policymakers, regulators really need to start to have a broader view and broader understanding of what's going on so that we can really start to push commercial sectors, you know, in a way that is is truly sustainable for them. Um, and that's really what Share Actions talk about is, you know, if you want long-term, these are long-term investors, if you want long-term investment, then, you know, you want your people to stay alive. One of the things you and your co-authors say in the series is this, this isn't about a lack of solutions. It's about a lack of those solutions being implemented. How do we get them implemented so long as these big companies, these transnational corporates are pouring money into the political process. Well, and, that, and that's a sense one issue is, is A, we need to understand much more. We have very opaque uh, systems in Australia of understanding who the lobbyists are, mm. who the, the, the people that make political donations are, and, and this revolving door, people moving from government into then into uh, lobbyists or into positions of authority where they're really aiding quite harmful industries to yeah. do more damage. So, again, transparency is really what is needed in Australia and globally. Our transparency index in Australia has been getting worse over the last few years. You know, our press freedom has been getting worse. So there's a whole range of issues that um, Australia could be, could be doing. But certainly starting to open up where influence is, where it lies, where it actually is applied is, is really important. It's not just obviously in health. It's across virtually every area of, of public governance. And how do we make that happen? It, it all sounds a bit grim, is what I'm saying. And I guess <laughs> no, well, it is I'm a bit grim. A, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an eternal optimist, I can tell you. And, you know, it is a question of, of putting together of the different sectors, actually, of, of obviously government, um, you know, policymakers and regulators really starting to think about this much more and being aware of, of what's actually going on underneath the surface, but also obviously really starting to work with some really very forward-looking business people. And recently um, we had Alan Schwartz speak at a, uh, one of the launches and he's putting together a group called the Transition Accelerator, which is basically putting philanthropy and investors and climate change NGOs together. Don't take away the profit motive, but that just simply won't work. But yep. really start to change the rules of the game. So in this instance, you can really start to invest very heavily in, in renewables, in, in safe products uh, that can also produce considerable profit. The point is we should be able to start to do that in food as well. So that you can't do it in tobacco because there is no safe alternative. 
and uh, alcohol you could. I mean, you can start to uh, get lower alcohol content um, and stop all of this is, you know, stop promoting so much of it to school or to, to young children. I mean, young Australians are absolutely bombarded advertisements for gambling, junk food, alcohol, and and they're done by the kings of Australian sport, whether it's the AFL or the NRL, you know, or the cricketers, then their icons are constantly reinforcing really harmful products. Is it important to be able to distinguish levels of harm and levels of yeah. involvement in that harm? And how do we do that? Absolutely. And and this is part of the second paper in the series, actually, is getting a much deeper understanding of the huge diversity of the commercial world. Um, this notion of the private sector, well, that private sector doesn't exist as a homogenous group. I mean, it's no. really interesting and shifting entities now, whether they're sovereign wealth funds, whether they're the superannuation funds, whether you know they are state-owned enterprises, and there's a whole range of cooperatives or privately owned corporations, publicly owned corporations, really quite different. And and the huge majority of actual commercial actors are small to medium enterprises, but it's the really big, powerful ones that are increasing their power and their influence and their leverage. And the thing that worries me more than anything else is the notion of mergers and acquisitions where you get this concentration of power um, and the fact that... Mm. Just in 2016, then, of the world's 100 largest economies, 71 were corporations. Wow. And and Walmart, everybody know Walmart? Walmart makes more money than Australia or Holland or Spain. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the potential of the, you know, money speaks in virtually every society around the world. So it's a question of how can, how can we really start to work with those that really understand about uh, in the business world, and there are lots of them that really understand what a better world and they want a sustainable world and they want a healthier world as well and they want to make profits. So working with, in a sense, the you know, pro-business, pro-health groups that really, really do want to move uh, at the same time as really starting to push government and that requires civil society and researchers and, and health practitioners as well to say, you know, this notion of how much advertising is occurring, for example, in, uh, uh, in Australia or, or where, you know, the front of pack labeling system doesn't work. Why? Because it's mandatory and it's been so heavily influenced by the industry to order it down. So this notion of what they call regulatory capture, where literally, uh, and this happened a lot, I was the chair of the National Preventive Health Task Force a number of years ago, and um, we made a number of different recommendations to the to the government at the time um, in 2010, and they took up all the ones on tobacco and bingo, We've done really well. Yeah. Uh, plant packaging was one of them. But uh, certainly in the area of, of food and alcohol, this wasn't the case because the food and alcohol companies were literally around the policy table. And yes. what they did was say, okay, we'll have a self-regulatory code of conduct around advertising to children in children's viewing time. We won't do much of it. And, and of course, <laughs> children don't watch in children's viewing times. They no. watch adult viewing times and they watch a lot of sport. And sport is, is particular because we love it so much, but it's one of the great purveyors of really unhealthy messaging. Should we give up on the big four? They're never going to change. Oh, they're going to they're going to keep doing their thing. <laughs> well, I mean, <laughs> tobacco. Obviously, we've made huge gains. I mean, remember that seventy five percent of Australian men smoked in the in the nineteen fifties, yeah. and now that's right down, uh, really right down. And and 
uh, obviously we've got the huge challenge of vaping now and mm-hmm. you know, thank goodness the government's really starting to to do something it's not going to be easy but you know the notion that you know yes have vape have in a sense nicotine replacement therapy where you need it for people that really do want to give up smoking but if you really think about vaping it's who owns it who owns these and that's of course the tobacco companies why because they know that if they can keep something in someone's mouth doesn't matter what it is, whether it's vaping or whether it's a, a heat-treated cigarettes or the standard burnt um, cigarette, the, the standard cigarettes, then they yep. can make an enormous amount of money out of it. So that just can't work. It doesn't work for anybody. It's got a whole lot of kids now who are adolescents and addicted to nicotine. Are we talking about the overthrow of capitalism here? No, I think you're actually talking about a, a much more responsible form of capitalism. But, I mean, capitalism that has no boundaries and where, for example, it's got a system. This is why this whole notion of really trying to understand the, the, the bigger system is that where these corporations don't, don't at all, they provide a whole lot of externalities. In other words, by virtue of their production and their consumption, then association, for example, between tobacco and lung cancer or ultra-processed foods and diabetes, well... The companies that produce that don't pay for the costs of that. Individuals and states pay for that for that cost, and that means that money can't be spent on other things like education or other forms of healthcare. They completely externalise all the negatives, and they leave yeah. it for for the rest of the society to pick up. Not only in terms of healthcare, but also in terms of waste. You know, in terms of whether it's packaging or whether it's litter or whether it's plastics, then the rest of society is picking up literally what they uh, what they've left behind. That makes them more powerful. And then, as that power asymmetry grows, then they've got more and more influence through either the media, through their advertising agencies, through their PR agencies, through their tax avoidance lawyers, through their other other associates to really constrain what governments can do. And that's why now having at least government in Canberra that can start to think about a lot of these things and resist that constant pressure. We saw it with the, the mining tax. We saw yep. it with so-called carbon tax, then then there was such huge pressure put on by by those companies that literally want to make all the money. And we've seen, you know, through COVID, you know, who makes who makes the profits out of these? And it's very concentrated at the high end of wealth. So more wealth creates more wealth. So yep. it's just about evening up who benefits from capitalism is the is the key issue. And it's not not nearly even enough. It's way too concentrated. And that's really unhealthy. And we've seen that through the, the original GFC where the financial gains were con- concentrated very much uh, at the high end of town. And we've seen it also in COVID. Is there a role for the lower tiers of capitalism, the, the, the smaller businesses, the smaller industries? Is there a role for individuals in improving this? Absolutely. I mean, I, I, there's a role for communities. There's a role for different styles of business that are much more interested in not only their profit, but also in what they're producing and how they're producing and and from their supply chain literally through to, to their waste. More and more people are interested in this and more and more companies are, are, are interested in this. And we're obviously seeing that with the whole ESG movement around, around sort of measuring companies and shareholders being aware of this. The point is a lot of that is being gamed at the moment. But we have to stop that 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 gaming. So they are are literally not greenwashing or other forms of of in a sense washing out their unhealthy behaviours. And and what we also need 
and this is being actually done through the work of, of Bronwyn King, is to have a been having a, a health component so that um, shareholders are able to understand the impact of their investments on health as well. The sooner we can get that to actually operate at an effective level, I mean, it'll take a while, but that will be a real game changer in my view. Wouldn't it be good to teach this stuff in school? Yeah, well, I mean, the point about about teaching it across the board, I think, is and really just letting people know what's uh, what's going on. And of course, there's there's always huge reaction to this, particularly by those who who are gaining the most. And this is a push for much greater light to be shone on what is actually happening, on how to understand these processes, how people operate, you know, whether it's their political practices or their marketing practices or even science. I mean. You know, the International Life Sciences Institute started by a former vice president of, of COPE. Uh, you know, they almost have a parallel form of, of so-called science. It was so strong that it convinced the Chinese government really to, to do nothing about obesity, just to, you know, that the physical activity was the issue, not diet. Again, we just have to be aware of where really inappropriate uh, policies are being put forward and the who's around the table anyway. I mean, there's... Many corporations and many particular industries have a complete conflict of interest and should not be around the policy table when you're establishing health policies, particularly around weight or around activity or, or, or you know, diabetes or any of these big big issues around heart disease or around alcohol consumption uh, and obviously around gambling. I mean, and one of the real problems, I guess, with, with gambling is that particularly state governments are, mm. are using a form of, of taxation. What's the bottom line if we don't do something about this, Ron? We've grown up with an expectancy, literally, that life expectancy will continue to increase, that our lives will get longer and, and better uh, as we go, grow older and that we'll have a, a happier society. And the point is that that really threatens that, particularly when you've got really powerful forces that are are locking out a whole part of society out of the potential benefits of capitalism in, in this instance now being locked out. Um, and there isn't that sense of, you know, Australia was founded on Aboriginal land with the notion of a fair go, and that was built into, in a sense, into our our ethos been disappearing over the last 15 to 20 years. And we've watched this, whether it's, as I said before, whether it's around all these indexes that are, that are, that are going the wrong way, whether it's around you know, childhood education, childhood development, sustainability, biodiversity, press freedom, peace index, quality of life index, quality of death index. I mean, there are all these sorts of things in Australia. We were, we were really up there and now this is, this is being worn away. And, Again, we we go to the wrong places for policy inspiration. I mean, the US is not a place to go for overall policy inspiration. Go to no. Scandinavia, go to Northern Europe or Scandinavia, where there's a commitment to the society as a whole, much much uh, much more strongly. And and what that produces also, I mean, if I can just comment a little bit on this, is you know the greater equality, the better the health. There's a dictum that says, you know, if you if we want to live the American dream, go to Denmark. <laughs> that's that's where, where it is. That's where, <laughs> that's where social mobility is the highest. That's it's where it fled to. And potentially we'll go here unless we we really start to make sure that the really negative influences on, on equity uh, and on, on health, that they are starting to, to shift uh, and that we really need 
really good business people to stand up and start to say, this is the way we need to make money. We can make money, but also um, we can also continually improve health and we can make sure that everybody benefits or as many people as possible benefit from the outputs of capitalism. You said before you're an eternal optimist. How, How do you keep that going, Rob? Because, I mean, I've known you a decade and you are an eternal optimist. And yet it, it seems to be a slow process. I just think that find good people and work with good people. And one of the experiences of, of this series and, and working with people like Anna Gilmore and Shannon mm. Friel and Nichols and a whole range of others uh, across the globe who are really outstanding. I mean, they are, I tell you, they're way above my pay grade. They are really smart. And <laughs> this is the, sort of the the current and future generations of uh, scholars in this area, but also practitioners as well. And yeah. if we can start to change, because not only do you, uh, within the sort of private sector, public sector de- debate, you've had a, a thinning out of the, of the literally of government to move against government's role, but yet you need really good people in government. Um, and they need to know what they're, they're doing. They need to be well supported. And the many different actors in the private sector won't solve our our situation without having respectful, valuable rules of the game. And uh, yeah. we yeah. need those to be not driven down by conflict of interest. Have you had much response so far from the series? It's the most popular Lancet webinar series ever, which is pretty cool. Um, Brilliant. Generally from the um, from the practitioner and academics, and that's, I guess, what we're starting because we really wanted to get a consensus definition and Anna Gilmore and her team have put together a, a really interesting conceptual framework, and we want to build on this. This is really just at the start because this is really getting everybody together for the first time, as you mentioned before, across a whole range of different silos, and yet we've got to do a lot more reaching out to a whole range of other groups in, in society as well. So what's coming up next? Uh, well, we're really trying to work out how we get this into the World Health Assembly, how we get this into the media like Dava, how do we get it into the World Bank? I mean, how do we really influence um, and work with business? I mean, just having you know, the next step is to brief 40 major global investors. You're using power versus power and that some of them really start to get to get this and they really start to understand the fact that they can utilise money for really for good. There are lots of good people. It's a question we do. Sometimes we just let those that are really, really just want it for themselves, we let them win. Thank you, sir. I'm Kate Swannell. We've been joined today by Professor Rob Moody from the University of Melbourne. Here's a quick reminder that the Tea Room is rebranding to the Medical Republic podcast. It'll still be really easy to find us. Just type the Medical Republic into your favourite podcast platform. Thanks for tuning in today and we'll see you next time. 